All right, everybody, welcome back to Booze and Views. James and Jessica Grissom here to uh, figure out everything that's wrong with evangelical culture. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. No. Um, no, so really, I mean, you if you've been listening, you understand that I'm not trying to cast stones. I'm really not. But I'm trying to talk about what we want to go dive into together is uh, the things that we grew up with that were a matter of course um, that were this is just the way things are that as you get older and mature and start asking more questions you realize um, I would have never willingly believed this had I had all the information or done this or whatever the case may be um, evangelicals do not have a monopoly on this this happens everywhere I'm not trying to cast stones it's just what we grew up in and as we grew up we realized mm, I don't really believe that anymore uh, so that's what this is about and today we're going to be talking about marriage and some of the stuff around that and uh, purity culture and how that fed into um, our generation's ideals and concepts of marriage and it might get a little bit frosty <laughs> um, but that's what we'll do but first let's loosen up a little bit yeah. <laughs> um, so today uh, I am sipping on some Hill Rock double cask aged uh, rye whiskey in an old fashioned. And since we're talking about old fashioned marriage, I felt like that was appropriate. Yeah. But I made this a little bit differently. So the basics of a real old fashioned are bitters, sweetener, and whiskey. Most of them have some kind of citrus in there too. Um, so I used also a dash of orange liqueur and uh, chocolate bitters instead mm. of some of the more common ones. Okay. So what you think? Let's see. Oh yeah, that's nice. Yeah. That's very nice. I, I like old fashions anyway and um, I love the Moroccan old fashioned at this place in in Dallas that we have gone to before the pandemic happened. So um, it's nice. Yeah. It's very nice. I like that better than a regular one for sure. Yeah. So the good thing about a rye is it can stand up really well to um, a bunch of spice and a bunch of floral flavors because it has that strong, almost astringent back end flavor that you really need some other strong um, complementary flavors to really bring out all of the character. Um, this rye is incredible. Uh, thanks to my stepmom, Sharish, she got it for me for Christmas. Um, it's it's really, really good. I would give the rye itself easily a nine out of 10. It's, it's a fantastic bottle. So, and love the old fashioned. Yeah, nice. It's a new fashioned, old fashioned. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Exactly. <laughs> so funny how that works, huh? Mm -hmm. um, That's very clever. So yeah, I mean, there are common components to an old fashioned. Um, and just because you mix it up a little bit, just because you change an element slightly, doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, this is still an old fashioned. It's different, but it's still an old fashioned. Um, I feel like that's a good analogy uh, for my view on Christianity, period. But especially when we start looking at um, marriage and um, the purity culture that shaped us uh, growing up and how we deal with um, traditional roles and statuses within marriage. Um, and so that's what we're going to dive into today. Um, and if this takes two recordings, we're sorry. <laughs> or three or four. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to start out by saying that um, Jessica and I work like anybody else has to work on a marriage. But I feel like we work well together. I feel like we have an overall healthy marriage. I feel like um, that we strive to make it as good as possible. 
Um, and of course, sometimes we mess that up. But overall, I think that we love each other and we try our best. Um, and in my opinion, the only way that works is by equal value and equal standing. I don't see her as a marriage possession. I see her as my partner. And without that, I don't think that we would be as healthy as we are. And I unfortunately see a lot of dissatisfaction in marriages where that's not the case. Yeah. I've got a few friends that have confided in me and they, they are struggling and um, not always, but a lot of times it comes back to the man saying, well, sorry, it's my way or the highway kind of thing. And it causes problems. Um, and there, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, probably a little bit on how we both grew up. Absolutely. So I think one of the defining factors, um, if you grew up in the evangelical church um, <clears throat> and you are in your 30s to 40s, mm -hmm. Um, then you grew up with, and I didn't honestly even know this name for it. Uh, but when we started talking about it, I was like, oh, well, yeah, duh. I heard that my whole life. <laughs> um, uh, the, the purity culture movement. Um, and so the purity culture movement really shaped both of us in different ways. Um, so it, with me, I didn't have, um, as long of an exposure to it because essentially from like 12 to 16 we went to church like three times um and you since you are four years older then i was on the tail lasted end it. yeah it lasted for a while in church but um and like we were talking about the history of it the other day and i really do think a lot of it uh, and i haven't done studies on this so don't upset if I'm wrong. Uh, this is just my speculation on this side of things. But I think that the purity culture movement, one, it was a response to um, teenage pregnancies in high school. And like it was, I remember being preteen, even just before that, like um, middle school age where it was, it was becoming trendy, at least in where we grew up here in Texas, it was becoming trendy to, um, have a baby and I always thought well good grief if you want to and I in fact I told people this sometimes and my mom got a little bit offended sometimes but I was like if they really want a baby they need to come over to our house for a week because we always had a baby and a toddler like a newborn and a toddler for 10 years straight so I didn't ever get the idea of wanting to just have a baby as a teenager because I knew it was really tough work and like all of my siblings called me second mommy so it wasn't this ever this trendy thing or this desire but I think the purity culture movement came out a lot in response to the rise in teenage pregnancies in like the late 80s early 90s okay. so yeah so we've talked about this before. Um, I grew up in traditional, you know, Baptist youth group. Um, again, you know, it, I had a gap where we didn't go to church for a long time. Um, but I, I got a, a pretty healthy dose of kind of the prototypical Southern evangelical youth group experience. Um, Jessica. <laughs> so we... Um... I grew up and we, me and my siblings, like we were homeschooled and we weren't, um, we didn't go to the actual youth group at church. We went to the homeschool family class and I made good friends there. But anytime, um, anytime we got together, it was just with all of my girlfriends and it, there were at, I mean, they had brothers, but they were never like in the same room or anything like that. And we discussed things and the women would take different turns, like teaching different type of home ec skills and then some kind of devotional type of thing. So I 
I got the purity culture, I guess some of the lessons, but it was very different. It wasn't ever in a organized church setting. It was always in somebody's home with a bunch of girls and we were working on all kinds of different crafty things. Um, a less structured type of uh, lesson on it, I guess. Yeah, so I probably got what was more the common um, popular experience mm -hmm. but jessica also got a job in a christian bookstore at 16 years old yeah and so i made it my point to read um i say all the books on the purity culture movement um when i start reading something about an issue sometimes i uh read as much as i can about it and i don't know i i probably read about the top 10 bestsellers on that um so i kissed dating goodbye and passion and purity and boy meets girl and when god writes your love story and all that so yeah all right well i'm going to give my real brief uh explanation of of thinking back on those times what purity culture how it impacted me how it impacted how i felt like i was supposed to react to it and grow through it etc okay uh so for me um the three big lessons that I remember about purity culture um, are mainly from male Sunday school teachers. We did have a, a woman youth minister who I still love dearly. Shout out to you, Debbie, if you ever listen. <laughs> um, and she tried her very best to be objective and balanced and all that. She had nothing but girls. Um, and I think there were times where she had to hold back because of the environment that she was in was very traditional and she's not and mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons i love her um not that she's heretic or anything she's just not the you know meek and mild christian doorstep and i love that about her um and um and because of her daughters i'm sure that there were some things that she didn't want to say and embarrass them in front of everybody um I feel like whenever she did address this, it was balanced, but I feel like that there was a lot of stuff that probably she said more to the to the girls than she did to the whole group because of the culture we lived in where that was not appropriate for a woman to stand in front of yeah. mixed company and talk about sex. Uh -huh. um, I, I feel like that was probably some of it. And so it was very vague when it was in front of everybody. But my uh, my male Sunday school teachers would talk about it, and and there were three things that impacted me deeply. One, uh, my eleventh grade Sunday school teacher um, told all of us, uh, and this comes from Luther: um, you you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair, um, and and that really stuck with me the way that he explained it of look we're we're visual people we notice things but it's your responsibility to stop the thoughts before they go too far um so that was good that was helpful uh the second part of it was um reactions to what i was hearing about um you know wait uh don't have uh, sex before you're married don't do all this uh don't um you know, holding hands can lead to kissing, kissing can lead to everything else, and just be careful how far you go. Um, but part of me, the reason that I was able to embrace that and kind of stay away from some of that um, was one, because I'm super shy or was uh, kind of antisocial. Um, and then also because I, you know, my sisters and my mother unfortunately had uh, very young. Um, teenage pregnancies and paid for it, like had tough, tough lives because of that. And um, so it was easier for me than for other people to look at that, look at the damage done there. And they loved their children, but it was hard. It was really, really hard, the stuff that they had to go through because of those uh, decisions and, and mistakes and all that. Um, but the um so the third bit though that really impacted me um during this whole time period was there was a ton of pressure on us as guys who were going to church 
that our responsibility was to protect everybody, all the all the women around us. Our responsibility was to treat them like sisters, treat them like future mothers, treat them like, you know, maybe the the future mother of your child. And by doing that, to have more respect for them than you might not. Which sounds really good in principle until you really dive into it. And I don't think that this was my uh, Sunday school teacher's intention, but the logical outcome of that is women can't possibly not be objectified because they have value, but it's because of what they might be to you later. It's not because they're valuable in and of themselves that whether or not they become a mother, that they're still extraordinary people. It's you need to treat them like a sister because they're going to be someone else's mother someday. Or this, you know, if you treat them like you would your sister, then you're treating them better than you would. And where I have a problem with that is, why do you have to be someone else for me to value you? Instead, you have inherent value that needs to be embraced. And that should modify my behavior, not what you might be or treating you like someone else, but treating you like exactly who you are, someone of value. So that was my direct uh, interaction with it and how I reacted to it. Yeah, and one of my friends um, recently talked about this um, because she was getting onto her son for saying, you know, for doing something to his sister. And then she said, you know, you're supposed to protect your sister and all that. And then she said that she realized in having this conversation she started changing her language because she was making it seem like the sister, her daughter was weak and not able to protect herself. And she said, you know, she had to change that aspect of you are strong. You, you're, you know, but you as the brother, you are stronger than her. And so it's not that you should always protect, you know, dainty little girls. Yeah. It's, it's that you need to be human and protect everyone because we are humans and we deserve the same you know, equal treatment and sure if somebody is being um hurt then you absolutely need to be an advocate for that person um like i'm all for being an advocate that's awesome but um yeah always having the language of of some of those things makes it seem like well your daughter is not strong she she obviously can't stand up for herself or something like that which is very damaging um that has its own things that we'll get into in a minute yeah um all right so what did you encounter then as purity culture what did it mean to you as a teenage girl so i'm trying to keep this wrapped up we can get through um so like the top three things was you are loved, precious, special, and because sex means more than just being with someone physically, wait until it's the right time. And then, you know, wait wait till you're with the person, the love of your life and all that. Um, the other thing that I got was you know, the side of things where the logical side, which I appreciate my mom talking about was that there are, there are diseases and things that happen and emotional hurts that can happen. So just take care of you, but love, love yourself, protect yourself and take care of you. So I did have the, um, the strictness, I guess, um, like we weren't allowed to watch movies with, language or sex scenes or anything like that. So I had that shelter and and structure, but I didn't look at it as this list of things of like, oh, I can't do all of these things. It was, okay, I need to, I don't know, just become who I need to be. Um, It was much more of a valuing side of things than what I think some people got. And I was very appreciative of um, some of the music artists that I listened to and all that. Um, Like they talked about it, but they also talked about, you know, if you've been hurt, 
by someone in your family or outside of your family, either way, like if you've been, if you've been hurt or if you just made a mistake and you messed up, it wasn't this analogy that I heard recently by one of my friends saying that you were like chewed up gum, which infuriates me because you should never tell somebody that, oh, you know what? The only thing you can offer your future husband is your virginity. And if not, it's like a piece of chewed up gum. Like that's wrong. Um, I can get on my soapbox about this. We'll go to the next point. <laughs> um, so that's the side that I didn't obviously directly encounter. It wasn't aimed at me, but I heard it. I uh -huh. heard that in my teenage years of women being blamed for all of it. Well, boys will be boys. We can't stop staring. And it's your fault if you're dressed that way to make us stare. And it's your fault if you're the one who doesn't stop it from going too far. Um, and the guy's there to protect you. Yeah, but if you seduce him, well, that's kind of on you, which is awful. Yeah. It's just awful. And I don't think that anybody directly said that, but that was the culture we lived in. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely the culture we lived in. Um, and so what it led to a lot, unfortunately, in Christian circles um, was in high school or in college for the first few years, especially, uh, you know, I went to a Christian college at first. Yeah, um, so did Jessica. I, I worked at one for a while and I saw this all the time, this whole ring by spring mentality of once you're out of the house and you start seriously dating, you better hurry up and get married or you're definitely going to sleep around which is worse than marrying someone who you don't really love mm -hmm. and the first time i encountered like i had that from friends and and especially in college uh not as much in high school but in college yes and one of the first times like i heard of somebody not getting married and um one of my customers at the bookstore her, she had to raise her grandchildren because the parents had passed away and her 16 year old granddaughter got pregnant. And she said that, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna adopt, essentially adopt the baby and she's gonna take care of the baby at our house and all this. And, and she said, we are not forcing her to get married to this guy because we don't think that it's, it's, you know, she doesn't want to get married to this guy. We don't think that we need to force her to do that. And it was the first time that I had heard that from somebody that was in a Christian um, setting. And as far as I know, this woman was a believer. And and it was the first time that I was like, wow, like that's, that's really cool that you're not gonna condemn her or kick her out of the house for having a baby. And then two, for not forcing her to marry someone that she's not supposed to be with or she doesn't want to be with. That should be her decision at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, this is, I believe that this is one of the primary contributing factors to the fact that there is absolutely just as much divorce in Christianity as outside of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's because, uh, and again, I'm not saying that, um, I'm not saying that that means that everybody should just go live a blase sex life. I don't think that that's the best thing to do for a lot of reasons, right. for emotional reasons, for uh, physical health, health reasons, yeah. for um, spiritual reasons. I think there there is something behind, um, you know, having one person, one spouse, and that that really is an amazing thing. And I'm I'm very happy that we are in that position. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we've put so much force behind this that. It is, it has unfortunately become better in some people's minds and some poor girls' minds to hide the fact that they went and got an abortion instead of admitting that they, you know, slept with their boyfriend. Yeah. And I had this happen a lot at, at school where I attended for college. And then also when we were on the prayer team at, a, at our local church. Um, I had one gal that came up to me shaking one day and, you know, I, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, she get assaulted or something like that. And she brought her boyfriend up and she was like, look, our parents are sitting in the service, but we were contemplating this, but we just can't, we can't do it, but they're going to be so mad at us. And I was like, you know, 
they yeah, they might be mad. I can't I can't say what your parents who they are what they will do, but please like you know if there's any kind of encouragement. And I said it in a way where it wasn't just. I, I tried not to be forceful with it, but just telling her like you know don't be afraid of of this like um, it's it's okay <laughs> like you're gonna be okay. Yeah. Um, and it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. And. Uh, we're going to pause real quick and start a new recording. This is going to be a long one, folks. Okay, so number two of our marriage, old-fashioned, new-fashioned marriage. <laughs> um, so we just got done talking about how, um, you know, in, in the culture that we grew up in, in the evangelical purity culture, it, there was so much pressure on the women that um, if you got caught, n people knew you were having sex. Like you were expected to get married, uh, especially if you got pregnant. Like it was, there was very, very little choice if you were a quote unquote real Christian than to get married to that person. Um, and whereas I value marriage and I love our marriage. Um, marrying the wrong person because you did something that you regret is not the best way to start a relationship. And again, I do think that that's why there's just as much divorce in Christianity as there is elsewhere. Um, I think that's it. that's one of the. I think it's one of the reasons for sure. Of course. I, yeah. The it, one contributing factor. There are many. Yeah. <laughs> but I think. Most of them tie into this uh -huh. next point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I really and truly believe that this whole you need to get married thing has n less to do with spiritual purity and actual well-thought theology than it has to do with misogyny. That the Southern Evangelical Church is still so deeply patriarchal and patronizing that women have just now started getting beyond a whisper. But even then, you've got John MacArthur telling Beth Moore, oh, uh -huh. go sit down and shut up. Yeah, or John Piper saying things, and he has a took back his statement and has since clarified but what he said in the first place should have never been said about you know if if you have to put up with verbal abuse from your husband for a time and then if he happens to slap you around like a night or so well maybe you should call the church and not the cops and all that i don't think so like there's a there's you should not hear that from a spiritual leader absolutely um and there's more but yeah but, yeah. yeah. Okay, I got to tell them about. Please. <laughs> so when we were in, well, we weren't even engaged quite yet. I think, no, we might have, I think we were engaged. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, we were, we were, we knew we were getting married to each other. And we went to one of my longtime family friends, their, their daughter was getting married. We went to her wedding and a uh, beautiful wedding and all that. But as they're talking the pastor, like as they're doing the ceremony, the pastor says do you, to the to the wife, do you agree to love and honor and obey? And I remember looking at James and I was like, we're not putting obey in our wedding vows. Sorry, <laughs> not sorry, but we're not doing that. I'm not your puppy. I am your wife and I'm not going to obey you. And I remember like he snickered in the service and all that. And then later we talked about it. And then I remember saying something to someone and this, this person, um, was very much about well there's nothing wrong with that and you most certainly should put that in there i'm like no we're not putting that in our vows um not happening yeah. and, and I, we didn't and i never wanted it in there yeah um, uh so i have my my culture around me has obviously implanted some things in my brain that have come out that shouldn't and um, it's my fault. I'm, I'm not trying to get away with it, but I did grow up in a culture where some things have slipped out. 
um, that I regret. But um, I grew up with, uh, you know, a mother and sisters who had to do it on their own. Yeah. And I've always respected that. I grew up with one of my biggest spiritual influences being Debbie, being a woman. Um, and I've always respected that. And um, I think I'm the one that actually convinced <laughs> Jessica that women pastors were not anti-biblical. Yeah, because I was under the impression of like a few years ago when we were, when I was looking into this, I knew women pastors from are uh, from again from the bookstore and I thought well you know in the absence of male leadership or in a place that you know you have a bunch of single moms raising the kids I don't see anything wrong with that aspect of it I still wasn't sure about the idea of women being pastors in a place where you know in, in a traditional evangelical church yeah because um, we were told growing up that that, that was wrong. wrong yeah and and even teaching like it wasn't even just being a pastor but like even a woman teaching sunday school wasn't allowed in two of the churches that we went to if a man was in the in there like a if it was a couple's class the woman was not allowed to teach yeah. and that's the tradition that we grew up in and it's got serious issues with it but it's very common uh -huh. um and you know, I think that, you know, one of the most damaging things out there are all of these not so helpful self-help books um, that just reinforce this over and over and that still set that as the norm that women are there to be protected, to be submissive, and that only by being, um, you know, the Susie Homemaker will you really get the the ultimate value in your life? Um, and to be fair, this is a lot less these days with actual, um, how people actually live outside of the church. You see that far less these days, it's still there, um, but it's getting less outside the church and therefore has started coming into the church. But in deep Christian circles, we have very, very close acquaintances, friends who are dealing with this right now. This yeah. is alive right now. Oh yeah. And there's books out there right now by men and women that are saying this is the way. Um, so this book has far too much to unpack now on this whole subject, mm -hmm. but very, very briefly, I'm gonna talk a little bit about every man's battle and let Jessica weigh in. Um, so for me, every man's battle uh, sounds really great in premise. Um, it's this book that came out uh, 10, 12 years ago, maybe a little longer, uh, a lot longer, 20 years 20 ago now. now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Been a while. Um, and essentially uh, the premise is every single man struggles with his eyes and here are some habits uh, to put into your life so that you don't, you know, stumble and commit sexual sins. Um, in principle, in theory, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that in those bare minimum statements. Um, but my impression of it, and it's been it's been since before we got married, or right when we got married, that I read it. Um, Jessica's actually rereading it right now. Yeah. Well, I never read it. Oh, I, I yeah. yeah. So I'm reading it now. So my impression that I got it first was, okay, this is cool. This is some really practical stuff and all that. Um, but one, it still places all the blame on the woman. If she wouldn't have been dressed like XYZ, then I wouldn't have my mind wandering, which is wrong. Um, yeah, you, you might, again, the whole bird over the head, you can't stop it flying over your head. You can absolutely stop yourself from dwelling on it. And if you can't, you need some counseling. Um, but to me, the, the bigger thing was um, if, if you set yourself up and you say, the only thing I need is some good habits, um, and you fail, there is a lot more likelihood that you're going to give up. If instead you address this as a, um, as a sin problem that 
is part of your entire um, sin problem with your whole life that needs healing and approach it as something that's broken about you that has very little if nothing to do with people outside of you um, and you focus on the internal healing and Jesus helping you through that then when you do mess up if you really believe that if you really believe it's because of sin and because of your problem I think you're much more likely to try again instead of giving up and I think that there's too much emphasis put on what you yourself can do and not enough emphasis put on approaching this in a social way with other people who you can talk to about this being a problem for you counselors if it needs to go that far um and it's only there's only passing references given to oh yeah well we need jesus to get us through all these things and that should be the focus in my opinion mm -hmm. yeah i can agree with that um as i'm reading through it and i'm not i'm probably about a third of the way into it now um the the problems that i have with this and i will have another podcast soon on after our closing thoughts <laughs> but the the idea of modesty culture uh or christian modesty whatever you want to call it i think that that is so subjective um we went to a church for a while where their idea of modesty was you wear head coverings all the time and you wear dresses down to your ankles. And if somebody wants to do that, that's totally fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but the idea, again, like James was saying just a minute ago, that idea of however you're dressed, you're, it's obviously your fault and your body that's causing me to stumble and do this. It teaches women to be shameful of their bodies. And that's wrong. And, you know, there have been times where when, again, I, I tell James this all the time. I'm like, if somebody can lust after somebody else's ankle or whatever, then it's not. I can be dressed like a nun or I can be dressed in a bikini in, on a cruise and still have somebody if somebody's not able to control their thoughts and their actions, then it doesn't matter what I'm wearing or not wearing. And I think that that is harmful for women, especially and young women as they're learning of, I, I read this book last year and it infuriated me so much that I, I need to write to the author now that I've calmed down a little bit. Um, but she, it's a teenage fiction book and the author talks about not reporting a sexual assault case that happened at work and it, she, the, the protagonist says, well, if I wouldn't have been wearing these really skimpy shorts, then maybe they wouldn't have touched me on these areas. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, I don't think so. And like, I have worked with women that have been caught up in sexual assault cases and I have tried to help friends get through to counseling and other things. And that's just so damaging the idea of it's your fault because you already feel that a little bit uh, or a lot of bit in those situations where it's like what could i have done differently what you know what was i doing you you have that self-imposed guilt but then to add the modesty side of things on top of that is just ridiculous now i'm not saying and like i i told james this before like I think you should dress professionally at work. I, I'm not, this isn't about being professional at work. Um, and, you know, you need to dress how you're comfortable. I'm not comfortable going around in certain things. Like, okay, very, very simple example. I don't wear a bikini to our family barbecues when we do that because I have very conservative family members that they don't like it when people wear shorts shorter than uh knees and then at the same time there's a lot of men there and i personally don't feel comfortable doing that there but i absolutely wear bikinis when we're out on a cruise because everybody's doing that and it doesn't i don't feel uncomfortable and out of place there so i think that there's a lot to the context of that but in the sense of women wearing whatever and then being blamed for harassment or assault 
it, that's a completely different issue and it needs to not be excused. Um, and I will argue until I'm blue in the face with people about that. Um, yep. So, yeah. And like I said, we might have to do another podcast about this later. Um, but I see that a lot in, in Christian books and it infuriates me. Um, yeah. And so um, I, I would say that another, you know, side effect of this is um, for for the guys who are trying to take it seriously, for the guys who are trying to, you know, do that whole protector role thing and um, all of that, because, you know, it's women need protection from themselves and we need protection from them. It's a weird dichotomy there. Yeah. Um, but then another part of what happens is, um, in most cases, um, there is a large number of people who respond to repression by going polar opposite way. Mm. So they respond to what, what may be started as good guardrails of, you know, don't wear this here, don't look at this person this way, um, don't touch this person that way. Um, and they repress, 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 repress until the instant they have a tiny bit of freedom and go off the rails. Mm -hmm. Or it on, um, from what I've heard from a lot of brands and things is, you know, with the purity culture, repressing all of these things of saying, you know, oh, it's bad. Don't do this until marriage and don't study about it. Don't look at it. Don't, you know don't do any of these things. And then all of a sudden you're just supposed to know all the things when you are married and it causes, uh, it causes a lot of frustration yeah. and sometimes physical pain and all that. So I think that there, there needs to be a lot more um, talk about it. Yeah. Just um, straight talk, just straight yeah. talk. Like not necessarily saying here's all the ways that you should do X, Y, Z, but just be honest. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, I'm gonna let Jessica talk about some uh, not so helpful self-help that she's read recently. <laughs> so yeah, the, the the one book that I, well, this wasn't a self-help one, but the one teenage fiction book, which again, that's, that's important. When you're giving your teenagers things to read or they're finding things to read, having these very honest discussions, um, I've told James, I said, this is what terrifies me as a parent is being able to, you know, not scare the mess out of your kids, but talk to them honestly about these things and have them comfortable talking to you about it. Um, and so the, the one, you know, teenage book was called The Fall of the Candy Corn. And it's this gal that was, uh, she was dressing up as a character for this uh, amusement park. And then that, that's when these guys assaulted her. And I'm like, yeah, no, not okay. And then she doesn't report it to HR because she's like, well, if I wouldn't have been dressed this way. So that kind of stuff, I see that all the time. Um, and one of the books that I, I'm not finished with it yet, I've got several going right now, but one of them is, has been a bestsellers on the bestsellers list for years. It's called A Woman After God's Own Heart by Elizabeth George. It's got some really great points in it. It also has some very terrible points in it. So as far as this whole idea of uh, submitting to your husband and James and I have had to work through this um, with each other because there are times where I haven't communicated things because of reading books like this where it's like well you know the man's the leader and you need to just be quiet and pray about this thing and I'm not discounting prayer but even in this book, like she goes so far as to say, if your husband tells you not to take a lamp back to the store because you don't like the lamp, well, then you need to just keep the lamp in your living room. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so some of these things, like even on, on the role, so like Elizabeth George, uh, Shante Fildhan, the For Women Only book, there's a lot of, there are some really good points in there. And then there are some of those things that it leaves women feeling just completely helpless. It, it leaves that feeling of you're helpless. 
you know, your mind obviously isn't as strong as your husband's, so you need to let him lead in these areas. Or if he doesn't lead, you just need to pray for him. And there are times where, yes, sure, maybe that is something, but there are other times where it's like we, you know, James and I complement each other differently. Um, and changing those non-traditional roles, it's looked at in some of these Christian women's self-help marriage books as uh, love and respect. That's another one that's infuriating me right now. Um, it's, it's this idea of you need to fit nice and tidy into this role. And if you're not fitting into this role, then you're obviously disobeying God because that's not what he intended. And he's not going to bless your marriage and all this. And I think there's two points to that one. The idea of that roles can evolve and change. And like, you know, we had we had a little baby bear two years ago and we have had to restructure some of the ways we are doing things. Ever since James and I got married, I don't cook dinner. James cooks dinner. Um, and it's not that I'm making him cook dinner because I'm this horrible bossy person. He enjoys cooking dinner. I enjoy cleaning. So we do that, but we also take turns and help each other with those things too. Because it's not this, this predefined role of you're the husband, so you obviously have to take care of the car, and you're the wife, so you obviously need to cook and have dinner on the table for your husband. Um, I have a friend that I, I recently talked to, um, and she was great, and she said that she loved her job. So when she and her husband got married and had kids, her husband was a stay-at-home dad, and she worked and she said it was awesome she said that they got a lot of um a lot of critical comments from it but she said it worked out for them and i don't think there's anything wrong with that if you two are in agreement with each other and you're figuring out what works best and then again sometimes that changes and evolves um and then on the on the book side of things i think that there's beginning to be a bit of a shift in Christian culture, but I'm seeing it more on the podcast and blog side of things and not from published, like the main publishers yet. Um, there's a few that are out there, but I'm just not seeing a lot of it. And I, James and I have had this conversation a lot and I think some of it, it's happening on the more social media, forum side of things because it's being provoked by changes that are happening in our current culture now. Like women are saying, okay, I'm, I can't deal with this anymore. What do I do? And I think that eventually it will happen in the Christian literature, but I don't think there it's there yet. So, yeah. All right. Well, sorry. So we've talked about purity culture, how it influenced us. We've talked about uh, how still today continuing, there are a lot of books out there that are um, promoting what we grew up in, what our parents and grandparents grew up in, um, and that it's starting to change within the church, but it's more of a grassroots movement than it is uh, a leadership movement in a lot of cases. I do want to point out that there are evangelical denominations that have had women pastors and things like that for a while. But what I've seen is even in those cases, um, most of those are still deeply patriarchal when it comes to, sure, God gave you something to say, but at home, the man is still in charge. And it's not the case everywhere, but I spent a lot of time deeply embedded in a, in a, a denomination that allows women teachers that is still a very traditional denomination in all other ways. Mm -hmm. um, so why does this exist? Uh, why is this there? And I was talking to a great friend about this uh, on Facebook. We had a little exchange over this and um, Jessica and I had a very <laughs> good long conversation uh, on 
the ins and outs of, of what I want to dive into next is that um, I think it is dangerous to say that this traditionalism is non-biblical. The unfortunate reality is it's there. The unfortunate reality is you can read the Bible and find misogyny and patriarchy from the beginning to the end. It's there. We can't ignore the fact that it's there. If we ignore the fact that it's there, um, then when a person stumbles on it, when they read it, when they see it, then they'll be like, well, this is what everybody's talking about. It is there. But I think two things. One, it's very important to separate um, the literary devices of Scripture to be able to get any meaning out of it. There are lots of things that are told as narrative. This is a thing that happened and are not necessarily didactic in saying this is the way it should have happened. So we have to be careful there. And there are absolutely um, didactic elements that were not meant to be universal, forever, eternal truths. There is strong evidence that when Paul was addressing, saying, you know, these women need to be silent in church, that he was talking about a very, very specific point in time issue um, having to do with uh, temple prostitution and cult worship in that area. And rightly or wrongly decided that it was safer for that time to reduce the likelihood of that being a confusion point. Reduce the likelihood of someone walking in off the street, seeing a woman pastor and be like, oh, cool, this is one of those sex cults. Um, but even if, even if that's the case, um, I do not believe that it was there for all time. I do not believe that it was meant to exclude all women from service because that's completely antithetical to what we find in scripture itself. There have always been women leaders in scripture. They're there. Yes, they're not as many because it was a patriarchal society that all of the, the literature was written in. Um, it was a patriarchal society, but the Bible does highlight and celebrate several female leaders. Um, and they progressively get more independent uh, throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, all of them were, um, you know, Deborah might be the only one that didn't have some dependence on a, on a man. Um, the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and, but, I mean, we get to the New Testament and we see um, that in the New Testament and in much of the uh, second and third century writings, the three Marys were revered as leaders of the church. And that died down again later in Middle Ages. Um, and, you know, we've got Priscilla, who was clearly a leader of the church. We've got potentially Junia um, as maybe an apostle. Um, but the point being that um, there is a trajectory in Scripture uh, for many issues of I'm putting up with this, I don't prefer this, here's a better way. And we see God doing that and progressively um, giving his will in doses that humanity would follow because humanity is stubborn and it takes a long time to change. Um, and I, I think that it's a mistake to say that all of that trajectory stops at Revelation. That there are many instances where the path started for women to have equal treatment, to be just as valued, to be just as capable as any man in any place, and it doesn't stop with Revelation, and it continues today with women being every bit as capable as anyone. And if we want to go back to it, 
I think that the perfect example of the Bible recognizing that this is going to be the end result is Paul saying there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female. There's one body of Christ, and the only head is Jesus himself, period, full stop. I believe that anything else that Paul addressed was a cultural aspect of the people that he was talking to and was not a set in stone rule for all time. And I mean, like we brought up the other night, like with the, the subject of slavery, like I, most people today, I would hope most people today in Christian circles and all that would say, well, yeah, slavery is not right. But then, then there was the aspect of Paul, you know, when talking about treating your slave right and all that. And I don't think that that's condoning that slavery is still a good thing. Um, and I know that was a big thing a um, hundred years ago or and even before. Um, and you know, I brought this up. I was reading a, a science book the other day. And one of the women, she was killed in the name of Christianity because they thought she was a witch. And I'm like, okay, well, even if they use the example of, well, we, you know, God said to rid our land of these things like they did in the Old Testament. And so therefore it's okay to do that. And I think that you need to strive to treat all humanity with equal love and respect and kindness and you know you might not agree there's a lot of things that i don't necessarily agree with but i'm not going to shun someone or treat them badly like if okay just a very simple example of this like when I worked at the bookstore, and I think I, I might have brought this up in an earlier podcast, but when I worked at the bookstore, we had somebody that came in that was a trans. And I had never, um, I never worked with anybody or actually knew anybody. Like I, I, I knew that that was a lifestyle choice, but I didn't, I don't know. And um, one of my, or one of our coworkers like walked completely away when they asked for help. And I was like, this person's asking for help. It doesn't matter with, you know, however they're dressed or what their lifestyle is. They're asking me for help. I, I need to help them um, with what they're needing. And I think that's the same with some of these things where we get so caught up in um, the roles of some of these things that we forget to treat all people with kindness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jesus, when asked, what are the what's the most important law, said, love God. And he said, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he teaches us that everyone mm -hmm. is our neighbor. Yeah. Even the people who, the, the, the Good Samaritan story doesn't make as much sense to us as it should, because what we don't understand in today's context is that Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. And Jesus called them neighbors. He didn't call them the enemy, he called them neighbors. But then even if they were the enemy, in another chapter, Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah. So when it all comes down to it, if we are truly to embrace Christianity, that means loving everyone the way we love ourselves, And that means treating everyone with the same respect, treating everyone that they are equal to you in every single way possible, including your wife. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that it's so important because it filters down to your children. If you have children and it filters down to your, you know, or, or across to your friends and, and other things where it's like, you don't, I guess you don't realize your level of influence sometimes until you start taking a step back and then realizing how some of those little things can be harmful or what little things might have 
actually helped. Um, we were talking about that a lot last night. And yeah, it's it's interesting for sure. All right, folks. Well, that was our longest by far. <laughs> we might have more to say when Jessica finishes. These yeah, other I'm sure books. we will. <laughs> um, but until then, keep drinking and thinking. Bye.